Happy Easter again to everybody. Glad to see you here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be reading the uh, first through the 15th verses together this morning. While you're turning, let me make uh, one uh, service announcement. You know, Easter's special just because it's uh, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of, of Jesus. But it's also special because we have a, uh, a birthday girl here in the room. And she's going to be mad that I'm doing this. But Erica Gordon turns, I think, two, two or three year old, years old today. Uh, Erica's in the back. She's our media director. Erica's a, a special person to the transit, uh, but also special to our family. Um, she moved from North Carolina with us uh, a few months after us to, to help us launch this church, have, have really been a part of our, our leadership and just amongst the things that we've done from the get-go. Um, Erica is a graphic designer. Uh, for us, she does everything from the graphics that you see on our website, um, media of every site, any banner that has a transit on it, all the, the print media, she, uh, she's behind uh, in many ways much of that. So thank you, Erica, to, for your service, for your friendship, for your leadership here at the transit. And we say happy birthday. It's awesome. All right, let's read some scripture. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. We're going to read these aloud together. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And, it, and this comes to the governor's ear. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in because it's Easter. We thank you for the life of Jesus. We thank you that he was courageous enough to obey the Father's will and allow men like us to try him, to beat him, to nail him to a cross. We thank you that he was courageous enough to die in our place for our sin. But we rejoice today because Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And in that we say, hallelujah, what a savior. God, we've come to the gate today as your church. 
gathered to celebrate Easter, but more importantly, God, to hear from you. I pray that you'd anoint my lips, that those who are here would hear what they need to hear from you. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive not just your word, but the good news of a God that's not dead, but is yet alive. God, would you bring us to life even today as we talk about the resurrection? God, take away fear in our hearts, any fears that might exist because of our preconceived notions about religion or of all those things that we are afraid to give up. God, give us freedom from our fear and make us excited like Mary at the resurrection of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen and amen. So Jesus' death and resurrection is the the crux of human history. The twin events of the cross and the resurrection uh, form the foundation of our church. You take away the resurrection and we don't even have a church. Jesus' resurrection is totally unique. There are other religions and faiths that have systems and tenets that include an afterlife of living beyond just death. They have sacred writings and scriptures, but Christianity is unique in that only in Christianity does God become one of us. God becomes a human being. He puts our skin on. He grows up and walks our roads. He eats our food. He does those things that human beings do. Theologically, the the Bible says that God condescends. He lowers himself to become a human being. Jesus becomes human. He lives a perfect life. He suffered in our place. And he literally died for people and then was nailed to a cross. But he didn't stay there. He was raised to life and now he rules and reigns over his church forever. So today our question is as we celebrate Easter, and we are really celebrating Easter, is why is the resurrection so important? That's the question I hope to to answer for us all today. And I'm going to give it to you up front. In case you check out or you start thinking about food, you know, we got to beat the Baptists and the Presbyterians to to Easter brunch, right? we got to get through some scriptures first. I'm going to give you the meat up front. Why is the resurrection so important? By the resurrection, we know that God's reign and his rule has entered human history. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we know that the end doesn't come in disaster. Like all those movies that we watch on TV that shows how just everything is in chaos and then it just blacks out. It doesn't end like that. Rather, because of the resurrection, it ends in a redeemed life. That God is literally making all things new. He's literally restoring all things in and through Jesus. Because of Jesus' resurrection, because he's been raised from the dead, we know that death has been conquered. And we too will be raised to live forever with Christ. Because of the resurrection, we can be confident and give credible witness to the claims that the Bible makes about Jesus. The early church's message was essentially the message of Jesus Christ. 
It was a message that not simply look to Jesus and obey his teachings. It wasn't look to a, a good moral man and be like him. No, it was a message that literally a dead man got up and walked. And that man didn't live to die again. He lived forevermore, and he still lives today. So the resurrection gives us solid confidence that Jesus is alive and that he rules and that he reigns, that Jesus is in charge. The resurrection affirms that Jesus is not merely a myth or a legend or some kind of guru that, that's going to lead us into some transcendental, out-of-body, out-of-this-world experience. Rather, the resurrection says Jesus is Lord, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I today by the Holy Spirit. That that same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead ushers us into a new reality called the kingdom of God. He gives us that new reality by his resurrection. And that new reality is also a motivation to live not for ourselves. It's a motivation to live in the power of God by the power that he affords us to live for him. You know, apart from the resurrection, there really is no message nor any mission to take us as a church into our community, into Kingstown, Alexandria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The church is fueled by the message and the power of the resurrection. We have a mission and we have a message only because of the resurrection. And not only can we be made right with God through the resurrection, but God gives us power to live the life of rightness that he's called us to. And that is found in and through Jesus Christ. And so as we turn to the text today, Matthew 28, 1 through 15, you guys are familiar with this text because we quote parts of it all the time, especially the latter parts, the Great Commission, where God commissions his church to go and do something. Right before that, Jesus is resurrecting from from the grave. And that really is where we find ourselves today. And this passage really is all about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it doesn't tell us the intricacies of how, who, what, and, and all that, but it, it gives us a narrative. And I think that's more effective for us sometimes than just having the nuts and bolts about the resurrection, because we get to see the effect that the resurrection had on people. And, you know, a story moves our heart. And so we're going to hear the story of two Marys as they came to the tomb expecting to honor the dead body of Jesus to know that he was not in the tomb anymore. He was alive. And so as we turn to verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And so both Mary Magdalene and Mary had followed Jesus through, um, through much of his life and his ministry where we see Jesus doing all the things that Jesus did with the disciples, you know, all the the apostles that ended up forming the early church, tucked in the background were these two Marys. There were people that he had known and and loved and followed, and, and he had befriended them. He delivered them from sin, and they called themselves friends of Jesus. And so, Earlier in Matthew, they had watched Jesus be crucified. 
they had watched a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea uh, by uh, um, ask the Roman leaders, could he have the body of Jesus, take him down from the cross and then put Jesus in the tomb that he himself bought for himself. They had followed everything that happened up to that point. And now they are rising early in the morning to go and take some spices and anoint Jesus' body. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, we learn that um, as they were bringing these spices, you know, they were talking to each other. I mean, who's going to roll the tomb away uh, you know, when we get there? They, weren't expect, they were expecting um, the tomb to be exactly how they left it the day before. Jesus put in the tomb, and in those days, tombs were left open. They weren't necessarily um, had stones rolled over them. That had been done by the Roman government. Little did they know the Romans had closed the tomb up. And that's what we find in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. You know, there's a few things that I'm personally going to ask God about when I get to heaven, and this is one of those. It's like, all right, so exactly what does it look like for an angel to descend down? And I mean, he literally, I think what happens is the, the women are walking up, and this angel comes down and like in a probably in a moment, um, he comes, frightens the living daylights out of those guards, pushes the stone out of the way. And then he's, he just, you know, it says he's sitting on the stone. I mean, I don't know if it's like this or like this or like this. I mean, who knows what posture that that probably that mighty looking angel um, was, you know, had had assumed as he's coming to do God's bidding um, to move this stone. Um, I think what's important here is not necessarily what the posture of the angels is, but what it represents. We don't know what that angel was doing or how he looked, um, much more than what the scriptures tell us. But what what I do know is that when someone is sitting, it's it's a picture of victory. You know, where's Jesus right now after being raised from the grave and ascended into heaven? He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Okay, and he's sitting, doing whatever he wants to do, all right? He's ruling and reigning over his kingdom. He's interceding uh, for us to the Father. It's a, it's a picture of victory that Jesus has won. That's why this angel is seated here. The angel didn't come to the tomb because, because Jesus needed to be let out of the tomb, okay? Jesus didn't, God didn't raise Jesus up, and then Jesus is knocking on the, the tomb saying, hey, let me out, let me out, I can't breathe in here. That's not why the angel is there. The angel is there to be a witness. He's he's there to be a witness for these ladies. So they would go, and through them, we would know that Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's gone, which means he's alive. Verse 3 and 4. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. Speaking of the angel here, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So the angel's beauty and glory scared these soldiers to death. I mean, they're like, ah! you know, one of those one of those kind of moments there. They're frightened. They couldn't even move. They were so frightened. And we should notice that the angels did not come. He didn't even address the, the Roman guards that were there. It, I mean, it wasn't like, hey, buddy, it's going to be all right. Uh, we're just here for Jesus and for those two women over there. It, didn't address them at all. The angels are there for those ladies, for Mary Magdalene 
and the other Mary. And he gives them words of comfort. Verse five. But the angel said to them, said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. So it says, hey, ladies, don't be afraid. And the reality of the resurrection shouldn't bring fear to us. The, the thought of being in relationship with God should not be a fearful thing to us, as if God were cowering down on us as a manipulator and a controller, trying to puppet us and make us do his bidding. No, it should bring a fear and a sense of judgment, possibly to those who don't know God and aren't trying to be in relationship with with Jesus. But for those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, this fear is more a fear of of respect and reverence. So the angel says, don't be afraid. There's nothing to fear here. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, he continues, he's not here for he's risen. And he said, come, see the place where he lay. These words, he is not here, are significant because Several times in this, in this gospel of Matthew, Jesus gave the disciples very specific words. He says, I'm going to be turned over to the Romans. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise in three days. And it's as if Mary Magdalene and the other Mary didn't, didn't remember that. And I would tell you the The disciples themselves, although they heard Jesus saying these words for some reason, every time Jesus said it, they couldn't grasp what he was talking about. In fact, in Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, verse uh, chapter 24, verses six and seven, this is the same rendition here. Luke uses different words. And the angel says here, he's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And I would tell you, oftentimes we're like that too. We, hear, we read things in the Bible that God says, especially for us. We experience things uh, in God's presence that he means for us to be encouraged and to give us instruction on how to live. And we, huh, what'd you say? What am I supposed to do? We forget. And thank God that, that, that God gives us signs and symbols throughout Scripture to help us remember what he's done in and through Jesus. So the angel invites Mar- the Marys to come see where Jesus is laid. It was as if he's saying, hey, c- come check out, check, come check it out for record what, what has happened. Jesus told you this was going to happen. It's happened. Come check it out. And these, these should be words for us, these are words of comfort for us. When he says, um, come here and, and see where he lay, those are words of comfort for us, especially if you have doubts, especially if you are confused about Christianity and you just, I mean, you want to ask questions. The, the, the faith that we have isn't a blind faith. We aren't expected just to have faith in faith itself. Oftentimes, we go to churches and we're, we're, told, we're, we're told, have faith and don't doubt. And, and, and we try to white-knuckle out, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe. But in our hearts, we have all kinds of doubt just about things that we read. It's like, well, well how, can, how can that be? Or what about this? And, man, I'm just having a difficult time with that. So what the angel is doing is, he, he, in a very tender way, 
he's giving these women an opportunity to express their doubt. And that's what God does for us, too. He gives us an opportunity to ask questions, to ask questions of, the, you know, of, of places where we're stuck in our faith. You know, faith doesn't require us to not be able to ask a question of God. We should be comfortable asking questions of God. If I were to ask this question right now, who here in the last month has had a question? A question, you've read scripture, it's like, what in the world? Um, or something that stumped you, okay? Probably a third of you would be honest and, and say, yeah, I, I had a question. I've had doubts. And the other two-thirds of you would be lying. Seriously, we all have doubts. I have doubts. There's things about the Bible that can't be explained, and I wonder, I just wonder, I mean, how in the world can, can Jonah survive three days and three nights in the, the mouth of a whale and be spit out and be in the exact place? Seriously. How is it that all the, the four Gospels um, and their stories all come together? What am I supposed to make of the places where they don't come together? What about those places where the Bible seems to contradict itself? I would tell you that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible explains itself. But how am I, can I ask questions about those kinds of things? And the, the Bible tells us that you can. You know, oftentimes we, we divide um, the questions that we have in our head that we really want to ask and the devotion of our heart as if the Bible did that, uh, uh, allows us to do that. Scripture welcomes you to bring both your head and your devotion and to, in those tough places where you don't know what's going on to simply ask questions of God. And so if you have questions, how do you, how do you relieve your doubts? Well, you, you pray about it. Doubts and, and things that you don't understand about Christianity should lead you to research a little bit. You can actually ask someone that you think knows a little bit more than you do. You can ask your community group leader. You could ask me. You could ask Peter. We don't have to go without our questions being answered. We can bring all those questions, even the silly questions about life that you have. Um, You know, I'm having problems with somebody at work, a relationship. Uh, I'm a student, and I'm trying to do my homework, and I'm clueless about this chemistry or biology. I need help. Lord, help me. And we can bring those to Jesus. And the scriptures say that he will help. It, it's, it's incredible. We, sometimes we worship Jesus as Lord. We don't worship him as the, the smartest human being that's ever lived. We can bring our, our questions to Jesus. And so hear the angel's words. Come see where he lay. It's an invitation for us to, you know, to research the facts. And Jesus' re- uh, resurrection from the dead was challenged from the very beginning. From the very beginning, right here with these women here in this scene, is an opportunity for them to doubt. Skip down to Matthew uh, 28, 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the priest, the chief priests, all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, 
And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Right here in the midst of the resurrection account is an opportunity for the story to get complicated and conflicted. And we see by the testimony of Scripture, some believe the guards that that Jesus' disciples came and, and took his body. And so what do we do with that? Especially if you're prone to, to believe that. Uh, the que- I, I think the way that you resolve that is you ask, so were the disciples really even capable of going and securing Jesus' body from these Roman guards? That's just the, the, the common sense question to ask. I mean, were they, did they have the right tools? Did they have their ninja outfits on? Were they with a special forces A team? Could they have gotten in behind enemy lines, slipped behind the Roman guards, not took them out, and actually rolled the stone away and gotten Jesus' body out of that tomb? Likely not, right? Probably not. We need to ask what their motivation would have been in stealing Jesus' body. Why would they have stolen the body of a dead man? They saw him crucified on the cross. He was dead, literally dead. So they had no reason except for that he was close to them of, of wanting that body back. He was a dead man in human flesh that was going to decay, so they thought. They had nothing to gain but persecution from this. In fact, probably a more accurate depiction of the disciples after Jesus died was in, is in John 20. We read these words in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the, the doors were being the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And so this is what the disciples did. Jesus died on the cross. They scattered. They went to the nearest place they could hide. They got behind the door and they were cowering for fear that the man that they were following who had been persecuted and killed on the cross, that they were going to have that same treatment done to them because they were Jesus followers. They had fear and they were hiding And so Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, he really walked out of the tomb. And the angels gave this message to these ladies, to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And he charges the women to go and take the message to the disciples. Go take this message to the men that walked with me while I was on the earth. Going back to verse 7. Matthew writes, then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I've told you. You know, one of the fascinating things about Matthew's gospel is, is how he depicts women. If you'll notice, in fact, you should go back and read just uh, from midway through Matthew all the way through the end of, of the Passion. And what you see is at very unique strategic moments when the disciples are all scattered, it's the women that remain. And Matthew brings this out. And that fascinates me. And so when when Jesus was crucified, the disciples all scattered, but the women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, were there along with Mary, uh, Jesus' mother. When Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, took Jesus' body down from the tomb and dressed his body and put him in the tomb, who was there watching? It was the women. The next morning when Jesus' body was supposedly in the tomb, Was it the disciples that came to the tomb to anoint his body? No, it was the women. And I think what's happening here is, as one New Testament scholar says, the gospel transcends for us any any restrictions of gender. We see this beauty in women 
following Jesus and tending to his body, even when the other disciples scattered. And I've mentioned this already, but, you know, this is the, this is the last chapter in Matthew. From here, the only thing that happens is the church is given the Great Commission, the, the mission to go and make disciples and to baptize people in the name of the, the Trinity, to do all those things that they saw Jesus do here. And right at the crest, crest of this mission are those women who followed and served Jesus. And this is interesting specifically because in first century history, women were not considered credible witnesses. If you wanted to corroborate a story, you wouldn't have chosen a woman to be the witnesses of that and to go and tell other people. That's what makes this so special. And so this proves to us the disciples weren't trying to make something up. They weren't trying to create this huge PR campaign and then market it because it was women that are the first to notice that Jesus was raised from the tomb. No, they're trying to tell the story exactly how it happened, how it came about. They're trying to be truthful to the gospel account. He continues in in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And so they got mixed emotions here. First, they're filled with fear because, I mean, they just... They've just almost gotten run over by an angel, a huge, mighty angel that rolled a stone away. But then there's joy that comes into their hearts because they're thinking, well, can this be? Can can our savior really be raised from the dead? As this angel is saying. They're fearful. I mean, who wouldn't be filled with fear from from talking to an angel? But then they have joy because the savior is alive, just like he said. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. You know, there's nothing special about this greeting. Jesus just, uh, in, in our modern vernacular, I, I laugh when I think about it, he's probably just saying, um, uh, Hello, ladies! I mean, that's, that's probably what, uh, the kind of greeting that he's given. And really, this shows the humanity. I'm not trying to be funny. This shows the humanity of, of Jesus. It's a warm, intimate, you know, kind of a cool greeting that our Savior would give to those that he's connected with. Hello, ladies. He's acknowledging their friendship. He's acknowledging that he's known them and just probably excited himself to see them. I like what the the Hebrew writer says about Jesus and as he brings out his humanity. Hebrews 4, 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is like us. He was tempted in every way. He went through all those things that we could experience on the earth. But he he lowered himself to be like us. But more than like us, he gained victory on the cross. He's won. He's finished. Verse 9 continues. The women took hold of his feet. This is uh, an ancient Near East custom of, of taking hold of someone's feet. But when you do that, what you're doing is acknowledging the royalty of someone. And so they're acknowledging that Jesus is both Savior, God, and King in this moment of worship. And then verse 10 says, Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there you'll see him. And so Jesus' first words that that are recorded in the Gospels as he's raised from the dead 
are to the women, hello, ladies, good morning. And then he says, don't be afraid. And if you'll notice, these are the same words that the angel said. So the angel comes from heaven. He rolls the tomb away. He sits on that rock. He says those same things, the same things similarly to the two women. And then Jesus comes and he pretty much regurgitates those same words. Hello, don't be afraid. And I think this, this replication of this idea of, of fear is there on purpose because oftentimes, again, when we think about relationship with God, there's, there's trepidation, there's fear in our hearts. And Jesus is, he's calming them. He's saying, there's, I come in love, I come in peace, I come as your resurrected God and Savior, I come for you. So there's no need to have fear. Be, be at ease. And for most of us, even for the most well-intending of us, there, there's fear in us. And this is what we fear. We fear that we're going to get caught. We fear that we're going to get exposed. We fear, what if someone found out? But I would tell you, God knows it all. He knows, he knows you. He knows where you're strong. He knows where you're weak. And so in those places where you're prone to fear, hear the words of Jesus as he explains them to, to, to the two Marys. Don't fear. I, I come in, in peace. It's, it's me. It's the Jesus that you know. And I think really the reason why he says this is because he's coming in love and the opposite of love is, is fear. And the gospel is in, impeded by our fears. And he says, if I don't want you to be fearful of me, I want you to receive the love that I'm coming in, that I'm bringing to you. I think a measure of, uh, of our faith is how much fear we allow ourselves to, you know, to, to have. I mean, are you, do you feel like an orphan? Do you feel like you are outside? Do you feel like you don't fit in? Jesus says, don't fear. I've come for you. I've come in love. And then he says something special. He says these words. He says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You know, up to this point, most of the time when Jesus talked to the disciples, he used the word, uh, he used the word disciple. And what he does in this, in this text right here is he changes their identity. And he says, go tell the brothers. The angel used the word disciple. But Jesus uses the word brother. And what he's doing is he's taking people who felt far off and estranged from God, who felt disconnected to him because of this, this, this burial thing that had happened, the cross and the burial. And he's saying, I've come to make you near. I've come to draw you back near. But more than that, he says, I've come to give you a new identity. I'm going to call you brothers. And this is a term that they did not deserve. Because if you think about it, in the last part of Jesus' life, what did the disciples do? They had betrayed him. Remember Peter? Peter denying Jesus. Remember Jesus on the cross and, and them being afraid to even be near for fear that they would be beaten and crucified as well. Jesus dying and them scattering. 
going and hiding behind the, uh, a closed door. And so really, they didn't, they didn't deserve the term brother, but he gave it to them to let them know that he was including them in his family, that he was calling them brothers and sisters. And I would tell you, this is the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection elevates all of us from disciples, from orphans, really, to disciples, but more than that, to brothers and sisters. These are the titles of identity. Jesus' resurrection invites us into his family. We're citizens of his kingdom. We're beloved. We're most loved by God. And that really is what he's saying here. This reminds me of of what Paul's words about this, this, this title, brother, in Romans 8, 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus has called us brothers. He's destined us to be brothers. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 11 says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He changes our identity by calling us brothers. And I would tell you, our new identity is shaped by the power of the resurrection. It brings us into a new reality. By faith, we're brought into a new reality where we weren't a part of God's family, but he allows us to come in. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed as this perfect community through eternity. And out of, not out of a have to, but just out of the overflow of the love that they have for themselves, they created the cosmos, all that we know of the world that existed. And the Bible says something crazy, that on the sixth day of creation, God created the pinnacle of his creation. He created human beings like you and I. And in this perfect environment of the Garden of Eden, he gave man and woman, Adam and Eve, a command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that one command was disobeyed. And from that one disobedience, sin entered all of the world. And sin has affected not only our world, but it's affected us. And here's the crazy, the craziest mystery of this whole story is that God in love sought us even in our sin. And he does that through Jesus Jesus comes, the second person of the Trinity, who lived in eternity. He comes into our world, born as a baby, grows up, lives a perfect life, completely obedient to God. And by God's plan, he goes to a cross. He dies on that cross to redeem you and I by his blood. And then he's resurrected. He's resurrected with the same Spirit of God that God gives you when you trust in Jesus. In fact, he invites you. He invites you to come and to have faith in him, in his person, in in who Jesus is, but also in his work, in his work of living perfectly because you can't, in his work of dying on the cross like you should have for the penalty of your sin, but also in his work of resurrecting from the dead, being both a sacrifice in our place for our sin, but being a priest mediating between us and God. Jesus and his resurrection mediates between us and God. And then, this is the neat thing about the resurrection. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus up from the the dead, 
God gives us. He, he gives us that Holy Spirit to live a new life. Not a life lived as we would want to live it, doing our own thing, but it's a life to live in the power of God. That's what it means by power of the Holy Spirit, power of the resurrection. It's the power to not do your own thing, but to live as God would have us live in accordance with his scriptures. And, and since we're Christians and on Easter we go eat, let me give you a, an eating analogy. And so God has set out this beautiful table, and he's not just inviting you to a barbecue. He's going to have hamburgers and hot dogs, a little bit of uh, roast pig, all kinds of good stuff. He, he's not inviting you to something. I mean, you can smell it already, can't you? He's not inviting you to that. That would be mediocre. He's inviting you to this five-star, five-course meal. He's laid out the spread. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are there, too. It's a family kind of thing. And this is it. He's welcoming those who aren't necessarily his friends and aren't his relatives. He's welcoming those of us who are his enemies. He's saying, let's make peace. Let's make peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. If you receive him and accept him, then you're welcome to come and dine at my table. I'm going to take a person who's my enemy and make him my friend. More than that, I'm going to take a person who was my former enemy and I'm going to call him my beloved, my brother, my sister, my adopted one. That's really what's going on in the story of Jesus and his cross. But more importantly, in Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus invites us as a part of his family. He invites us to have the same spirit in us to live as, as the spirit that raised him from the dead. That is the power of the resurrection. And so the question, as I close, for us as, as we celebrate Easter is simply this. What are you doing with the resurrection? Has the resurrection of Jesus, has it any meaning for you? Have you responded ever to Jesus and his resurrection? And I would tell you there's two ways that we respond to the resurrection. Generally, we respond sometimes by just politely ignoring it. We, we say, you know what? I, I do believe in Jesus. I actually believe he was a, a, a historical figure. He probably even lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose from the grave like they said he did. But I just don't have time for Jesus right now. And so I'm going to put him over here until I have time later on in my life. Oftentimes we respond to the story of the resurrection like that. Secondly, we respond by, by, by well-intending doing religious activities for God. We do good stuff. We try to be good people, well-intending. But what we do is in our, in our activity of doing good stuff, we miss the devotion of, of actually worshiping Jesus. And I would tell you, both of those fall far short of what God wants and expects of us. This is what the Bible says about the resurrection, that it's coming. That there will be a time where both Christian and non, dead and living, will be raised. There will be a resurrection of the living and the dead. And for those who have responded to the resurrection, who've responded from the perspective of putting their faith, their trust, in this God who became a man and died in their place on the cross for their sin, then it'll be a welcoming. It'll be that, that party, that five-star 
table spread for you and a feast that will last forever. And the Bible says that for those who have responded negatively by shoving off the the, responding to Jesus and his resurrection till later or responding with just simple religious activity that has no devotion connected to it toward God, then it'll be as if Jesus rejects you. Even if you would come to him and say, but, you know, but I went to church. I did good things. But, but I, I even gave money sometimes. And scriptures say there'll be some that come to Jesus saying, I did all these good things. And Jesus say, I never knew you. Which one will you be? And so hearing the gospel makes, makes us responsible. Maybe you've never heard the gospel before. What's the gospel? It's the story of, of, of God becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross in your place for your sin. Perhaps today is the first time that you've heard the gospel. And I would simply tell you, the gospel requires a response. We have to respond to the gospel. We're either going to respond by trusting in Jesus or we're going to respond by putting it off. Which one will it be for you today? This is the offer. God responds God offers you really one genuine response. The Bible says that the right response to the proclamation of the gospel is to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus. To turn from living your life the way that you would want to live it and to turn to this God who has become a man and died on the cross for you. If you have never trusted In Jesus, God wants a response from you, and it would be repent, believe. Let's pray. Father, we're excited. We rejoice in this God of our salvation, that he is not dead. He's alive. We reflect on your scriptures today. Both with fear and joy, we're like the Marys. Could it be that our God, who we saw die on the cross and was his, his, the, the air left his lungs and he was put in a grave, could it be that, that he's not there, that he's alive? We thank you for the witness of Scripture that tells us, yes, Jesus is alive. God calls us to rejoice. And God, help us to live in the power of the resurrection. God, I pray especially for those here today that may be wrestling with fear and doubt. They're confused as to what they believe. They don't know what to do with this story of of Jesus and Easter and his resurrection. I pray that you would would help them, assuage them with their doubts. Help them to have courage to ask. Help them to have courage to, to research their doubts. And God, I pray that they would come to you asking you, Lord, help me. For those of us who are following you, Lord, I pray that you put just a joy in our hearts today. But more than that, Lord God, fill us with the power of your resurrection. May it be said of us that the resurrection fueled our mission and our message, both here in Kingstown and all of Alexandria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.